Hey, welcome back. It's Still Sober with John Rabin. And um, I just looked. It's week 51, year 10 of sobriety, which means next week, the episode that drops will be uh, my um, 11, year 11, 11 years of sobriety. Yay! Um, so... I don't know if I'm going to do anything special. I didn't do anything special last year. I think I just will do the same shit that I do, which is uh, uh, yap for about 20 to anywhere from 20 to 28 minutes, depending on uh, how things fall. So much like we're doing today. Hello. If you're a sober person, hope you're staying sober. If you're not a sober person, hope you're staying sane. I want to dive into what this episode is, is going to be titled, which I don't have the wording for it yet because I haven't posted it and I can't title it until I post it. Probably could have written something down, but that would have required planning, which is basically what do you do if you have a friend who has an, an addiction problem and needs needs help, like what do you do? So I want to go ahead and jump into that because it's because recently a uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine um, passed away, and um, I haven't spoken to him in I haven't seen him in years, um, but. No, it's been, I don't know, been, been about five, yeah, it's been about five years, five or six years that I'd seen him. Um, but the word on the street was that he was dealing with um, a really bad addiction problem. It was vague, too. I don't know what drug, doesn't matter. Um, but a lot of his friends just kind of shrugged it off. It's like, oh, yeah, he's going to do what he's going to do. And I understand that sentiment. I understand the idea that it's like, well, you can't make an adult get help. There's nothing that you can say that's going to make them seek, get treatment and get help. You can't make somebody do it. And that's theoretically true. That's mostly true. But can you live with... The, the idea that you could have said something, but you didn't say something, and then they OD and die. That's really the issue is can you – and it shouldn't be about just alleviating your own guilt. That's – you know, in some cases, that's not great. You know, like if you break up with somebody, there's no reason to tell them that you cheated on them. You're already breaking up. Why – alleviate some of the some of the guilt that you're carrying you know you did it you get to carry the guilt you don't get to dump that on somebody in the guise of being honest it's the same kind of thing it you know it's like don't do some a self-serving thing but to alleviate but to, to avoid being in a position that you put yourself in where you could have done something I, you know, I, I recommend 
at least for me. Like I did not have an intervention, a technical like, uh, you know, like like you see, you know, textbook intervention. I didn't have one of those. My intervention was basically I had um, the last time I had OD'd, I ended up in the hospital, and I woke up and, you know my family was there and I was given an ultimatum. I was told basically that if I didn't go get help, get treatment and do something right away that you, that, you know, that was it. I was staying with my dad. I was out of the house. I was going to be out of the house. I was not going to be able to, you know, get any kind of help or anything from them. So it was kind of an ultimatum put forth. And that was, that's all it took for me. I was like, I was already in the situation. I'm like, oh, this is, this is bad. But like, that was the final, like, like push. I was like, yes. So I, but I think an intervention and the thing is, is that it's like, oh, interventions seem lame. Yeah. Yeah. They're not fun. It's not a party. They seem, you know, they are lame. There's nothing cool about them. They are uncomfortable. They're meant to be uncomfortable. Nobody enjoys them. But if there's a person that needs it and you can get enough people on board, it's worth a try. And if you can't get enough people to do an official intervention, then what I recommend doing, because if this is somebody who's an acquaintance, you're not going to, uh, you taking them aside and saying something uh, to somebody you don't know that well, isn't going to work. So this has to be somebody who's a family member that you're close to or a friend. You need to take them aside and you need to tell them that because here's the deal it a lot of interventions don't work they don't end up going or they end up getting pressured and they go and then they get out after a day or whatever like it's it's unsuccessful but you you but a lot like you know John Mulaney's for example or you know famously or, you know, like the ultimatum that got put on me that worked. What really, here's why it matters that you take the bullet and take somebody aside and tell them exactly what you, you know, you think is going on that you need, that they need help and that they're out of control. Because if, what happens is is it will probably be unsuccessful. They won't go get help just because you said something to them. But if later they do get help, later if they end up getting into recovery and end up sobering up, later, we're talking years, that person is going to remember that you took them aside and that you gave a shit 
and they're going to remember that. And they're going to come back and tell you, hey, man, thank you. Because I remember the couple of friends that didn't put up with my shit, that had had enough, and that said, look, you're out of control. And it was afterwards, after, you know, after getting sober and after spending my little six month stint away and coming back that I was able to reach out to them and talk to them and um, praise them on social media and all that shit. Cause it was, you know, 2012, 13, where, you know, it wasn't too obnoxious. Everybody thought it was normal and it was just kind of a, you know, we weren't super addicted. We were, but we weren't, we were anyway, but I'm getting off track. It's, it's the way to go. You have to, tell them what I would suggest is I would read up on some, you know, maybe some articles, uh, some, some writings about opioid use disorder or, uh, you know, about addiction, about people who have addictive issues, um, you know, who have the, because before you do, just so that you get in the mindset, so you're not attacking somebody for being, you know, a selfish cunt. That it's about, you want to get in the mindset of, they ended up here because of, you know, genetics, because of who they are. Not because they made a bad choice and they're a ter terrible person. You know what I mean? It's got to be about, you got to be put yourself in a mindset that that's that this is a friend of yours who's in a problem and they need and you're just trying to bring it up. You're just trying to focus the attention on it. That's once you get then you can talk to them, but you have to get in that mindset so that you're not attacking them. You're not coming at them, um, belittling them and that sort of thing. That's, I think that that's what's important. What you don't want to do is nothing. Also, when you do it, after you do it, you have to How do I say it? You have to you have to make sure that they know that it's kind of an ultimatum thing about your friendship with them. You have to put your foot down about it. This is now. Now I'm not talking about somebody who you're like, hey, I think their drinking's getting out of hand. This is somebody with some deep addiction issues and they're spiraling, and you need to like, it's intervention time. When you put your foot, you need to put your foot down about it. That you won't be able to help them out with a ride. You won't be able to give them some money. You won't be able to do whatever. Any kind of the the enabling bullshit that happens, whether you realize you're enabling them or not. So it's like you you state, you declare exactly, and there's got there is tons of stuff on the internet about interventions, about confrontation, this this stuff. I can't I don't have any advice on how to do it. 
because I've never done it, but I've had it done to me. So I'm going off of what works from the other angle, like what I remember afterwards at the time, because at the time you're irritated with them. You don't, you know, you're like, well, fuck you kind of a feeling. But then afterwards, then you're like, then you appreciate it because that's, that's how it should work. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't be cool. You don't want to be attacking them, but you, you, you don't want to do it, you know, in an easy, comfortable way. So that's, it's, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to feel good, but it's, but it's definitely something you should do. And then, and then you put your, you know, you put the foot down. You is like, this is it. This is it. Because the thing about it is, is that you don't know this, but if more than one person does this to them, at some point there may be someone who does it, that that's the, the last switch that, that finally clicks in the head of somebody that's spiraling, that it's like, oh shit, the jig is up. I got to stop this. That is one too many people or whatever. So that's my advice on it. You've got to say, you know, don't say nothing. Don't just do the easy thing, which is, you know, like with the internet, it's like, you need to cut toxic people out of your life. Yeah, but before you do, you need to explain to the toxic person exactly why they're toxic. But in this case, you know, with addiction. So that's what I've got on that. I want to read this thing and I'm going to try uh, my best audio book reading for you. Um, it's an article from... Um, this social media's leading physician, KevinMD.com. I don't know. The, uh, the, the article is misunderstandings about opio opioid use disorder. All right. So I'm going to read it. I saved this at the end so that if you're like, well, I don't want to listen to him fucking read. Well, then, you know, thank you. We'll see you next week. So here's this. This is to help when you're talking about if you've got an issue with I don't understand how somebody can become addicted. And you want a little bit more information about it? This is uh, this is pretty uh, pretty informative. So here we go. This isn't audible. All right, sorry. <laughs> okay. At a recent scientific conference on narcotics, a researcher mused, "Honestly, opioids make me feel gross. I don't see how anyone could get addicted." This is a little like a doctor in the delivery end of a needle saying, "Honestly, you're a wimp. This doesn't hurt." Both examples reveal a lack of empathy, yet true, and a fundamental misunderstanding of current neuroscience. The contributions or fear, reward, fight, and flight are a complicated mix of experience and genetics. Needle fear comes from a bad shot experience at a pre-logical developmental state with a whiff of fainting-prone genetics. 
opioid use disorder flips the ratio with such a strong genetic influence that it's conflated with family environment. Neuroscience research untangling why some who are exposed to opioids become dependent is ongoing with surprising implications for prevention. Number one, both emotional and physical pain areas are highly interconnected, allowing for quick punishment or reward responses to anything the human organism does. Otherwise, how does the brain learn? Reward switches in the brain... Reward switches in the brain release neurotransmitters that make you feel a certain way. Dopamine for winning, serotonin for pleasure, and oxytocin for love. Some dopamine switches, called mu receptors, are morphine-activated and often overlap with the brain areas activated by pain. So morphine doesn't stop pain. You just feel so rewarded you don't mind. Number two. Some people have more switches and need less morphine, while some people need more morphine to have sufficient reward for equivalent pain relief. The baseline array of reward switches depends on gender, age, previous experience, and genetics. Pain, both emotional and physical, can leave a persistent brain resting state that feels new, that feels new pain strongly, needing more reward opioids to get to I can handle it. Number three, as dopamine is the brain's primary reward and behavior motivator, dopamine processing variations influence opioid effects. Some genetic subtypes are reward deficient. They get less of a kick from dopamine from daily activities. The theory is that when opioids activate their receptors, their experience goes beyond relief to euphoria. Many mental health issues, quote unquote, now are felt to be associated with differences in dopamine and serotonin processing, thrill-seeking due to a low dopamine responsiveness, depression from low dopamine output, etc. Four, the receptor's behavior changes over time as well. After a short period of morphine exposure, some opioid dopamine receptors retreat into the cell to regroup. When less intense oral opioids are taken, the lower intensity and concentration can be compounded with the lack of switches for rewards, so home oral opioids have less impact than ibuprofen on pain. Damn. Finally, number five, different liver metabolism genes cause about 5 to 15% of people to quickly transform oral opioid forms into morphine. This CYP2D6 variation leads to more rewards up front, but a faster return of pain. The 85% with different genes don't turn the pills into morphine fast enough to help much with pain relief. However, nausea, constipation, sweating, and withdrawal aren't affected. So, how can anyone get addicted? There's a lot to unpack. A colleague of mine developed an OUD after wrist surgery. There was stealing, lying, getting fired, the whole stereotype. Ignorantly, when he was in recovery, I asked how on earth he let this happen, you know, because post-operative opioids have always made me feel sluggish and nauseated. To, to paraphrase, he said, I always feel awkward and anxious and I can't ever relax. When I first took the pain pill, pain pill I felt awesome. I felt cool. I felt so great and powerful and happy and worthy of being loved. How could you not want to keep feeling like that? 
Researchers call that feeling euphoria, and it is distinct from the relief of pain. Blah, 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 blah. There's a big... I'm not going to read the chart. Family history of addiction may relate to, fa to familial rapid activation or mood receptor euphoria rather than generational environmental risk. People with the CYP2D6 metabolism gene also have higher rates of smoking and alcoholism. The neurotransmitter reward in OUD, however, is orders of magnitude more intense. This is why 95% of successful OUD treatment requires medication, manipulating the switches to keep the reward pathways in check. Now that is a bunch. Thank you for letting me read all that. I just wanted to point out that last sentence. This is why 95% of successful OUD, which is opioid use disorder, opioid use disorder, opioid use disorder, OUD, requires medication manipulating the switches to keep the reward pathways in check. It's opioids are so it's such a thing like the powerful ones oxycodone which is like slow release heroin fentanyl all these different ones that are really bad it's not like other addictions because it is a genetic thing it's not just a matter of cutting it out that a lot of people need you know they need a medication like some you know suboxone and uh, the different ones and you know the, the different kinds of, that are out there to help to block the receptors to help like wean them off of and retrain you know it's manipulate these switches to keep the the reward pathways in check to, to basically to get back to fairly normal because otherwise you know you just cold turkey it you've got no receptor you've got no serotonin you've got no dopamine like it's you're fucked you're in a, a low that is just like broken so I find that very interesting. I wanted to, I, I wanted to read that so that, you know, you could, uh, like I said, this is, uh, the name of the article is, is by Amy Bax Baxter. It's uh, misunderstandings about opioid use disorder. It's posted on September 3rd on the website, kevinmd.com, which sounds, um, uh, like a, like something made up, but it's legit. I like looked it up. I was like, where, what is this? Um, I don't know. Kevin started it. Good. Great, Kevin. Um, but Amy Baxter is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine at Augusta University. Um, so an actual, yeah. So I appreciate it. This, uh, oh yeah. Still sober pod at gmail.com for any questions or co comments that are positive to neutral. Um, I'm no, uh, personal anecdotes this week. I got nothing. Everything's fine. It's hot. What can I say? I hope uh, something came out of this for you. Um, 
we will uh, we'll talk to you next week all right later Inside. Disconnect the telephone line